Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. So we're going to fast forward a few editions of Roland Garros to get through to 2015. How many's Rafael Nadal won in the meantime since he lost in 2009? He's won, what, another five? Yeah, five in a row. The first time he'd won five in a row, first time any man had won five in a row, 2010 to 2014, just utter Nadal dominance. Yeah. And then it all sort of went a bit wrong, didn't it, in 2015 for him? And meanwhile, Novak Djokovic is the dominant player in the world and he still has that big gap in his CV, the French Open. He'd never won it. Would he ever win it? Um, Well, what would happen in 2015 uh, is a saga in of itself and he would go on and uh, have another one in 2016. So we're going to cover both years, 2015 and 2016 in one, Catherine. Are you ready? Yes, it's like a tennis diptych, isn't it? Yeah. What it really is, is we couldn't decide which one to do, so we thought we'd do them both. Well, it's, but it's, it's one the story, story though, isn't, isn't it? it? It's yeah. the story, and I mean, the story encapsulates a lot of years, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely reaches its crescendo across 15 and 16. And Catherine's really pleased about this because it means we get two lots of trivia for the year. Go on then. <laughs> the year 2015 and 2016. 2015 first, I enter Catherine. this portion of the show with excitement and trepidation. Yeah, so do Always. I. <laughs> after yesterday, I now enter with trepidation. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a bit of a row after yesterday and uh, it got resolved about 10 minutes later. Uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, let's yeah. see if we can get through this the, one unscathed. It was an argument edit out, edited out of yesterday's show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe we should open up a new portion of the Kickstarter for uncut versions of podcasts. poor poor patrick our editor that has to listen to do our rows there's a single (laughs) listener who gets to hear all this apart from us and matt yeah Yeah, i'm I'm very much a listener in these arguments (laughs) matt goes very quiet um so anyway 2015 um caitlin jenner appeared on the cover of vanity fair uptown funk reached number one and became a worldwide phenomenon (laughs) And the world was divided over the blue and black stroke white and gold dress. Do you remember that? Those were the big events of 2015, as I remember them. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Those things happened. (sighs) It took me about six takes to do that, everybody, uh, because I kept laughing. Um, So... You don't need to explain, because I'm in a campaign for all of them to be left in the edit. No. No, they can't Including be. the bit where you fell off your chair. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is about this section of the podcast, everybody, but, but it's becoming increasingly challenging. Anyway, got through it. Uh, so was it blue and black or was it white and gold, that dress? I don't care. 
<laughs> Catherine Whitaker there. Um, so fortunately, uh, the year's final that we're looking at 2015 was worth the wait. It's worth your wait. And unfortunately for us, there's hardly any coverage out there about it. Uh, so thank you to Bogdan, who uploaded a 25-minute highlight reel of this match. Um, and it featured Novak Djokovic coming in, coming in as the world's number one, the Australian Open champion, and on a 29-match winning streak, up against Stan Wawrinka, who had won an Australian Open um, a couple. Well, it was a year earlier, wasn't it? Um, he was world number nine. And he hadn't been on a great run. He'd lost in the second round of both Monte Carlo and Rome to Grigor Dimitrov. And he was wearing those shorts, red, white, Czech shorts, which on reflection, having seen them again, I quite liked, actually. But the shirt really was not a good idea. Yeah, the shirt was a far bigger problem than the shorts. I mean, as we've learned during Tennis Relived, he was he was not the original plaid beach shorts wearer at Roland Garros, Andre Medvedev uh, earned that crown uh, back in 99. But yeah, the shorts are absolutely fine. They were they were not even at the particularly outrageous scale of tennis kit. It was more the teaming them with a really weird, horrible shirt that, that didn't go at all. It was sort of grey 90s, just naff naff shirt and no fun no fun at all fun shorts and then like a weirdly boring shirt nothing Strange. wrong with the 90s Catherine I'm all for the at, 90s at the time sure sure actually if I'd have worn that in the 90s I'd have been hiding the pictures um <laughs> but yeah so in comes Stan Wawrinka in a final that is going to make history for Novak Djokovic that's how this was set up wasn't it this was going to be Novak's Day. Finally, he had beaten Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals in straight sets. Nadal was in a bit of a bad place at the time. He was not in form and Djokovic was in, in, in exemplary form. He'd absolutely dominated him all season. The head-to-head -head was going his way. He'd thrashed him on clay at Roland Garros, something he'd never done before. And then he beat Andy Murray and it just, it looks all set up, doesn't it? And we've just re-watched well, we certainly watched the highlights of this match. Well, I think we all watched it live at the time. The emotions it gives you, that match, are, are something else, aren't they? From the tennis that is being played, and I should say on both sides of the net, because what comes across re-watching it is just how well Novak Djokovic played in that final, and then the level that Vavrinka reaches and sustains in order to actually take the title from Djokovic. And then at the end... I completely missed that Djokovic got an ovation and a, and a sustained, prolonged ovation, which brought him to tears and which was really moving. I, I, I mean, I'm sure I saw it at the time, but I had forgotten it. It was the whole day was was incredible. Yes, I mean, so many things to say about that match. I, I still think it's probably the highest quality match. I can remember seeing for sustained quality of hitting for four sets. It's the match with the most sort of emotional high notes and just incredible ground strokes from both of them. Um, I think as much as Djokovic was infused by beating Nadal en route, I think Stan Wawrinka got a massive confidence boost by beating Federer in the quarterfinals, something that He'd never done at a slam before and he'd always been in Federer's shadow and to finally come through him at a slam filled him with a confidence that we then see in this match. Um, I just think Wawrinka's tennis against Djokovic, there was a series of matches they had. It, it became one of the best rivalries really in, in Grand Slams and this was sort of the high point of it. Um, but Wawrinka was able to pierced Djokovic's defences like nobody else could. I've always thought there's no way through Djokovic's defences. You've got to you've got to go round him, you've got to go over him, under him. But Wawrinka finds a way to pummel his way through repeatedly with the most muscular barrage of ground strokes. It just makes you laugh, to be honest, the way he does it time after time. It makes you gasp and it makes you laugh at how sustained the brilliance of it is. And yeah, I mean, Djokovic, that reception that he got that you mentioned, 
I always think that that's like uh, it's like a character in a in a computer game, and their and their energy is on is in the red, and they go into like the charging zone, and it charges them back up into green. That's that's what that moment is for me with with Djokovic. He was at a lowest at a low point, and suddenly they brought him back up that crowd because. There's two things Djokovic wants. He's made no secret of it. He wants success, he wants titles, trophies, and he wants love. And he didn't have the trophy there, but he did get that love. And that was, I think, really, really important for him. And we'll go on to talk about the 2016 final where he's the crowd favourite in that one. It was a, it was a switch in, in his whole career, I think, that moment. It, it was like the Parisian crowd were saying, it, it's not personal that mm. we weren't cheering for you it's like they were saying Stan Wawrinka's tennis today was just irresistible it was an irresistible force that we were all swept up in and it was impossible not to be it was impossible for us not to be watching it just now even though Djokovic played fantastically and contributed as Matt said to to one of the highest quality Grand Slam finals we've all ever seen it, it that's what it felt like to me it, a, a sort of we had to. We had to cheer for that tennis today. But we do want you to have your chance. We do want you to to win here eventually and complete the career slam. Yeah. And and, and I think there was a, a realisation from the crowd of what Djokovic was was trying to achieve that day and what, what he would have been going through standing there on his own with the plate again, you know, coming up just short and there was a there was a sympathy for him uh, and, a, and an appreciation it was it was a, it was actually a lovely moment it it must have felt like a slightly cruel joke to Djokovic that day because in his mind I think he had possibly accepted that that Rafael Nadal might be a roadblock he'd never be able to to punch his way through at Roland Garros, I think, you know, as much as he was he was hell bent on trying to, Nadal had 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 formed a significant obstacle both in reality and in his mind, and that's something we'll hear um, Marion Vida talk about later. Did an interview with him a couple of weeks ago about all of this, and he actually said that 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 obstacle of Nadal caused him to fall out of love with clay a little bit. It was his favourite childhood surface. And then over the course of these seven defeats that, that Djokovic suffered to Nadal at Roland Garros, he kind of got it in his head that it wasn't his surface anymore. So to to thrash Nadal in the quarters, no matter what form Nadal was in, you know, he'd lost to him seven times. To thrash him in the quarters and then back that up with, with the win over Andy Murray, you could understand him feeling like a little bit like the job was done. And mm. I don't think he lost that 2015 final because he was complacent. No, about he played it so at all. well. I mean, he dug in, he did what Djokovic does and he, it just uh, oh, wasn't absolutely. enough. And, and Vavrinka caused him to, to raise his, his level. But I do, I can understand, you know, some of his reactions during that final are just like, for goodness sake, <laughs> for goodness sake, I thrashed Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals and I'm going to be beaten now? by this guy. What on earth is this? A guy who'd been in the bar the night before reports Mike <laughs> Dixon today. Um, he did an interview with Stan actually last night and, uh, and yeah, Stan said I was in, in the bar till the early hours just having a couple of beers to unwind before the final. Brilliant. Good old Diesel. Yeah, Mike says, of hulking build and slightly unkempt appearance, he could pass for the harassed Euro detective in some surprise lockdown box set hit. Vavrinka <laughs> <laughs> has always been a deceptively good athlete, which, which I think Euro sums it up. detective. <laughs> wow. I think that point of Wawrinka being a deceptively good athlete and Diesel is actually a really important part of why he caused Djokovic problems as much as his tennis was eye catching and the winners he hit, it was the way he could sustain it and just get stronger throughout the match Whereas normally Djokovic is the one getting stronger throughout a match, but it always felt like Wawrinka actually made Djokovic less so in this match, but in a lot of their meetings look a bit limp and forlorn because Wawrinka would just sustain this barrage of ground strokes and Djokovic didn't really have an answer. And 
I just think that as much as his as much, as good as his tennis was, it's that it's that physical endurance that makes him so hard to beat, and why he's got a really good record against Djokovic in slams, but not in best of three sets. Mm. Yeah, Vavrinka loses the first set and thinks, right, I've got you exactly where I want mm. you. <laughs> and I think and he- I think he's basically the only guy in the last ten years, really, to have beaten Djokovic at a slam after losing the first set. He's done it three times, um, and, he, and he meets the moment, Wawrinka, in a way that makes him so exciting to watch because you kind of just know he's going to come up with a backhand in between the net post and the IBM sign as he does in as he does in this match. One of the great shots I've ever seen. That, well, hang it on, you've watered feel... that down earlier. You called it the best shot you've ever seen. I mean, that that was some build-up yeah. to that shot. Matt gave us, he, he said, I'm pretty sure there is a shot in this that is the best shot I've ever seen. And to which Catherine and I were, oh, here we go then. That's, this is going to take <laughs> some li- living up to. And to be fair, once they, once you saw it in um, live motion, you, you don't really react to it because it doesn't seem plausible. It looks like the ball has gone through the net. And then when they show it in slow motion and see that he has outside the tram lines – hit this diagonal backhand in between the net post and the sign, which has got probably about three balls widths mm. in order to get through. And he's hit it right through there. And he's uh, aimed and into the corner at full pace. And it's the only way he wins that point. And the cra- he didn't get the ovation from the crowd because they, they didn't know what they had seen. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think it was only a few people in the crowd with the right angle to, to appreciate what exactly the they'd just seen he deserved he deserved a three minute long ovation for that <laughs> for that shot alone yeah well he got the trophy uh so he was happy <laughs> enough in the end and uh, and it's actually one of the great rivalries i think it's it's the unsung rivalry because mm. nobody really talks about Djokovic for Vrinka, but it delivers as an entertainment package doesn't it they've had some corkers at the australian open um and i, I would say that the achievement of Djokovic in rebounding from that and going on and winning Wimbledon, the US Open, Beijing, Shanghai, Paris indoors and the O2 the rest of that year is one of his greatest achievements. Yeah, I mean, I'd have have had backhand winners flashing past me in my nightmares for about the next (laughs) three months if I've been on the receiving end of that Wawrinka performance. And yet... (laughs) Between the net post and the IBM sign, every one of them. Yeah, and he just he just put it behind him and went and won Wimbledon, and then, as you said, took off and had this one of the, I mean probably the greatest season in, in men's tennis ever. Really, his record against the top ten, the top five, the finals he reached and won that season was ridiculous. Um, and it, it it was a it was an indicator really that that was the level you needed to reach to be able to beat Djokovic that season, and I think. Maybe some people thought Wawrinka had come up with some kind of blueprint of beating him. But no, that was not a one-off because Wawrinka has done it before, but he's the only one capable of, of pulling that tennis off. The rest of the tour just couldn't, couldn't live with Djokovic that season. He said that was the highest level of any of the slams that he played in, in, in terms of the finals. He said the, the, the 14, this is in Mike Dixon's piece, he said the 2014 win meant the most to him because it was the first. The, the 2016 one, he was proud of himself because of he'd had to get through a lot. But this one, in terms of just sheer level, that final, and he said he, he felt it coming in the game that Djokovic served for the opening set, that he ended up winning Djokovic. But he said, it was. I suddenly started to feel like I'm playing well now when he was 5-4 down. And if you remember, there were multiple juices and, and Djokovic just about squeaked it out. But after that, really, it was just mostly one-way traffic. So that was 2015. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST 
and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Do you want to know what, what happened in 2016, Catherine? Desperately. I'm afraid it's not very good news <laughs> this uh, this time. Uh, Britain voted to leave the EU. I mean, you can mm. make your own mind up, but uh, I don't think that's very good news. Uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. Uh, oh, again. What, what a year. Uh, again, all, all opinion. We should, I, have all, we should have all stopped in 2015, shouldn't we? Do you want me to Just go back to, uh, to worlds said. being divided over blue and black and white and gold dresses instead? Cause yeah. Um, and then, as Matt said earlier, um, David Bowie, Prince, George Michael and Muhammad Ali all died. So, yeah. And Muhammad Ali was during the French Open, I remember. Was it? Yeah. Um, because I didn't actually see this French Open final. I was, I was on my way to see Bruce at Wembley, probably the only thing I would voluntarily give up seeing a Grand Slam final for. Um, but I remember Bruce dedicated Tougher Than The Rest that uh, that evening to Muhammad Ali so I'm I'm pretty sure it was during the French Open that Muhammad Ali died wow that's a great moment um the the final itself it, it's, it's one of those interesting ones because we're British and okay Matt was watching Bruce Springsteen but the rest of us were <laughs> I was either soaking it up on five live listening to the coverage of of, of the team and BBC radio or watching the matches on on British TV and and, and soaking up the news coverage and, and Catherine you would have been there wouldn't you for Eurosport that year no I wasn't I had been I'd been working at the French Open uh, that year for the ITF actually oh, moderating yes. um press conferences but um, I always used to to come home after the semi-finals because obviously right. there were only a couple of uh, press conferences at, in the latter stages. So I actually watched that one uh, <gasps> with my family at my parents' house. Mm. And and I think th- the lens through with which we are seeing it through a British media perspective ends up being an Andy Murray one because he's playing Andy Murray. That's the first the first concentration point. The second one is that Novak Djokovic is going for for greatness and in this in this situation as we've said from the french open final that he's lost to stan Wawrinka, he's gone and won wimbledon the u.s open and then early in 2016 he's won doha australian open indian wells miami madrid and rome um is that right yeah and there was a point there i think during the clay court swing where he had more than double the ranking points of the person in second i think murray got him in rome murray won the rome yeah, yeah murray got him title in rome. but there was a there was a point during that clay season where he had double the number of points of number two which i think was murray it was it was incredible dominance and that's mm. why personally I, I i know there was this quest for djokovic to get the french open i must say i always thought he would get it Mm. In, in the in the I didn't ever think that but about then, Federer because he had the Nadal problem, but Djokovic by this point had kind of overcome Nadal and okay run into Wawrinka, but I kind of just thought eventually he's going to get it. Thought the same about Hingis. Mm. Cast your mind back to that. I know. Yeah, everybody's saying, "Don't worry, Martina. Of course you'll get one." Yeah, eighty-four matches he won between those two French Open finals, and he lost just six. The one thing, thing I did want to say, we were we in the show yesterday. We were talking about Federer. Would he have won one if Soderling hadn't taken Nadal out? 
Now, I know the year before Nadal was beaten by Djokovic, but Djokovic didn't then capitalize. He, he, he ran into Vavrinka. In 2016, Nadal comes in and he wins his first two matches for the loss of a handful of games, he, he, three or four games. So he's, he's playing well. And then he injures his wrist and he has to pull out ahead of playing Marcel Granoyers. I suppose, you know, that that's another one of those that we'll never know the answer to, whether Nadal might have regained his form sufficiently by then to have actually stopped this. You know, Djokovic didn't beat Nadal in the end to win the French Open. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't hold that as any sort of asterisk personally. I, I kind of just think Djokovic got what he deserved. He won the title and he also had to, to beat off an Andy Murray who was playing the best tennis of his career at that stage as well. Um, but it's it's worth just just noting, I think. I was, I think that it, that will be insignificant in in his mind because he had got the win over him the previous year. Yeah. I, I think potentially it would bother him if he'd never beaten Nadal at Roland Garros. I think potentially that would just be a little thing in the back of his in the back of his mind. In the same way, or perhaps to a lesser extent, but possibly as for for Roger Federer. Um, but I think he he dealt with that the previous year when he got that win over him in in the quarters and and yes it wasn't full force Nadal but it was a thrashing he thrashed Nadal at Roland Garros and and that was I think job done demons laid to rest mm. there in the final in 2016 we've just watched highlights of that as well and Andy Murray wins the first set which I kind of forgot about really the the. Djokovic suddenly finds himself on the back foot and Murray's playing really well. And he's also got that game face on. I mean, I guess you, you would expect him to in, in a Grand Slam final, but he's got that dog with a bone look about him as if it's going to take something significant to stop him because he's just not going to let any ball bounce twice. And Djokovic rises up to meet that challenge. This was right in the period where Djokovic had Murray's number. I mean, I know we mentioned Murray... <laughs> beat him in the Rome final. But I think since the 2013 Wimbledon final, Djokovic had won 12 of their 14 matches. He was dominating their head-to-head. And I remember thinking Murray needs to do something different, change it up, and he need mainly win the first set because he kept losing the first set. And I think he'd never beaten Djokovic when he'd lost the first set. And I remember a statistic that he'd never lost at the French Open when he'd won the first set. So for Murray then to grab that opener is such a good sign, such a positive sign. He's playing aggressively. He's throwing in drop shots. He's got that, yeah, that look on his face. But I remember the, and having not watched the match, I remember the commentary of it being that he seemed to just kind of run out of energy. I think he'd had those matches at the start of the tournament against uh, Matthias Borg and Radek Stepanek, which were five setters right at the start. And I remember people commenting then, is that going to play a factor later in the tournament when he's not got sort of the strength in his legs? And it seems like Djokovic takes that, just takes his legs away and ends up sort of running him a bit ragged in that final from, from well, those highlights. Well, Boris Becker, who of course was, was coaching Novak Djokovic at the time alongside Marion Vider, he, he came to Queens a couple of weeks after that French Open, didn't he? Not because Djokovic was playing there. I think that was the, when there was the, the presentation for the, for the four-time champions of which Becker is one. Um, and in an interview about that French Open final, he was asked what made the difference between Djokovic and Murray that day and Becker replied four hours, 56 minutes, which was the difference in time each of them had spent on court to get to the final five hour difference in, in match time. And I don't mean that to, 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 to diminish Djokovic's achievement in that final, because I mean, that's all part of it, isn't it? It's, Mm. you know, the route to the final is all part of the achievement. The fact that he, Djokovic didn't expend unnecessary energy in the way that Murray did against Matthias Borg in You never saw two. that, did you? You've never seen really in the career of Novak Djokovic him get himself in unnecessary mm. epics. No. And yeah, five hours different. And I should also mention that, you know, Djokovic had his own struggles, not of his own making. That was the 
the French Open that was hugely affected by rain. There was that one day where it was so wet and the forecast was so apocalyptic that they cancelled play at half past 12. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. just said, this is this is a hopeless venture. He played Let's... four matches in four days. He, mm. and, he, and Djokovic being in the top half of the draw, he got the, the worst end of that and ended up having to play on... F- play on four straight days um he did get a day off before the final crucially but you know he had his own stuff to contend with yeah i remember a three-day match i think with bautista agu which feels like nothing after i know now about a five-day match with uh, <laughs> settling in the dull but yeah that's not a guy you want to have to be playing for three days bautista agu he's someone who could tire you out i still have uh, an umbrella sitting in my corridor at the moment, actually, that I stole from <laughs> the French Open that day. And it's still wet from that tournament. <laughs> yeah. I just looked out the window and I thought it was in the ITF uh, offices. And I just looked out the window and I thought, I can't, it, my waterproof is not going to get the job done here. I need, I need reinforcements. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, when he served it out, when he finally won the title, it, it gave me memories of yesterday watching Federer try to get over the line because um, Djokovic is serving at 5-2 to try to try to win the title and then loses his serve and eventually gets the job done at 5-4. But even in that game, there are stressful moments. And he, there was, there was, it also reminded one of his current coach, Goran Ivanisevic, almost looking up to the crowd as if to say, give me energy, give me, get me over the line, please, somebody help me. I can't do this on my own. And yeah, you get that sense of the magnitude of what they're trying to achieve in those moments. Murray had his, of course, when he, when he had the same at Wimbledon three years earlier. And although, of, of, of course, in, in that moment, they, the, Everybody listed the, the all the men before him. They only listed the men, obviously, um, that had achieved the the career Grand Slam. And of course, Federer and Nadal had done it. But it, I think it's worth noting that obviously at that point they talk became of the the calendar year slam because he'd won one two in the same year and it was an olympic year as well. So suddenly there's you know mutterings about the golden slam, which which didn't feel ludicrous given his record that year that we've just talked about. But Federer and Nadal, there was never really any talk about a calendar year slam for them because neither of them won the Australian and the French in the same year. And it's not really until you've done two that that you can legitimately start talking about doing four. It wasn't since Jim Courier that anyone had won the Australian and the French to start the year. Um, and that that really struck me what an achievement that was. I mean, obviously he he also had won four in a row, and that's a ridiculous achievement too. But but doing something there that neither Federer or Nadal had done is huge. Yeah, and I think the very fact of winning four in a row was something Federer and Nadal had never done. And I think Djokovic, by virtue of being the third guy, has always been looking for ways where he can one up Federer and Nadal. Federer and Nadal basically did everything first, but he's found ways in his career to do things that they haven't done. And I think that's really important for him. I think he gets, he gets a big kick out of that. And I think it, um, Mm. I think ultimately it's, uh, it's a way of measuring him against them. If, if he's got things that they haven't done, you know, the fact that he's won all the slams and all the master series, the fact that he's held all the slams in one time, these are important, important points that, can be used to really validate his greatness compared to to theirs. Well, let's hear from Marian Vida now, the man that coached Novak Djokovic to that success has been by his side throughout his whole career, including when he first started on clay. Basically, he did his favorite surface was clay. And ironically, uh, when he became professional uh, on level, on ATP level and started playing, he was winning. He was winning the tournament on clay at the beginning, but later on, it's just adapt to the other surface so uh, somehow uh, mentally he he felt the clay is not his typical surface anymore (laughs) because he just started to play and winning the Grand Slam 
uh, grand slams on the other surface as a as a grass and and the hard courts. So uh, <laughs> uh, somehow the sympathy to uh, to to clay uh, was gone a little bit for for uh, for many many years. I mean. It was not only because of that, but it because also uh, dominance of Rafael Nadal and, uh, you know, his best result on clay. So it was difficult to overcome this. It was in 2011 that Novak won Wimbledon and the US Opens and got the, the third of, of the four Grand Slams. So then there was a five-year gap uh, between doing that and finally winning the French Open. How much of a focus or even an obsession did it become winning the French Oh, well, I have to go back a little bit because, uh, you know, all the focus for him was obviously the dominance of Rafael was primary focus on, on to beat Rafael basically on clay to win the French Open. But he had a couple loses before, but uh, that was amazing situation because he beat Rafael in one year. One year he beat him in quarterfinal and then he, he beat Rafael and uh, Andy in the semis and then he lost to Stan, which we, we counted and he, maybe he counted to be it was potentially to have a trophy already in his hands. But after that, I think it was quite bitter to lose that final and still to come back 2016 uh, uh, to win the title. That only shows how strong mentally is Novak and how much he wanted to win the French Open. Seven losses, I think, to, to Rafael Nadal at the French Open before before eventually beating him. How much of a... A mental block had Nadal become for Novak. Exactly, exactly. That was a a lot. You know, we first of all, me as a coach, I had to look for improvement in his game on clay. Basically, uh, uh, what he have to adapt to adapt his game uh, because Rafael is very strong player, very powerful player on clay and. He was using a lot of weapons. Exactly what he has to, what you have to do on clay. Uh, he had a lot of spin and slow down the game. And you know, it was for Novak was tough to uh, speed speed the ball back. Uh, and you know, he needed a lot of a uh, lot of uh, strength. Uh, and uh, you know, to beat Rafael, and uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't do it because if he wouldn't change his game. Uh, I mean, uh, and the the change was to take take the ball earlier, and uh, you know, especially his backhand. Novak had to improve backhand against his forehand, so he has to take ball very early in order to short down the points and to be more aggressive and to be dominant on, uh, uh, and uh, in his game. So it took him a while to realize that, and uh, luckily it came the year. Also, it has to be all. All circumstances done, and uh, that year Rafael didn't participate in the tournament. Uh, 2016, Novak beat uh, Andy uh, in the final. In 2015, when when Novak got that win over Nadal in the quarterfinals, and and it was a a very easy win in the end, straight sets. How how much of a big deal did that feel? How much of a, a relief, and maybe even a surprise? How how one sided it was. <laughs> Yes, I mean, as I remember that, uh, it was a big relief to beat Rafael and, and, uh, in quarterfinals. And, uh, you know, it looked like it's going to be all the way through. But, you know, as I mentioned, maybe it took him a lot of, a lot of, uh, the main aim to win it. It took him the, 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 the joy of, of the win it took him a lot of concentration off as well. So he didn't focus that much on the last uh, last match, and uh, even though he had a lot of chances in the final against Stan, he missed them. And then you know every match is different, and the final is special. And the Stan played really, really great in the final. And I have to admit that that uh, Stan deserved that win because Novak really feel the pressure, and you know just because that probably he beat Rafael and Andy. <laughs> And he was just maybe as big favorite going to the final. Was there an element of shock, Marion, after that 2015 final? It was incredible shock. It was bitter lose, and we all uh, after the final I had a lot of questions 
from the journalists and how does it feel? What, what, how, how is going to make it, make it next year? Whatever. I always said, listen, I, I, right after final, we feel very, very disappointed because it, you have only one chance in your life. Maybe you can make it now and you know, maybe you're not going to make it again. But there is a, was always hope that there is always, <laughs> we always see the picture on the long run and you always see that, uh, there is a chance to play also next year. So there was always little hope that you can you can have a chance uh, to play Rangaros next year and still uh, still you can you have a chance to win it. But you, as we know that Rangaros is the most difficult, most toughest tournament in the world, just to overcome seven matches on clay, and uh, uh, a lot can happen. So it going to Going to next uh, 2016 with this vision was really tough to overcome. Did you ever doubt that he would eventually do it, win in Paris? I mean, I had a doubt. Always you had a doubt because you have four Grand Slams a year and Novak was always had a big aim to win the four in a row. But, you know, uh, I had... Uh, always hope that he can win Paris and accomplish the Grand Slam. But in that year, particularly year 2015 and 2016, he accomplished four in the row. And uh, it only shows how mentally uh, and uh, get strong and, and better to be prepared for Grand Slams and accomplish the, the, the biggest, biggest ever winning strike four in a row. Uh, one of the few in the history. So I think he, he's aiming. He's aiming these goals for his life, and I think I had a hope always that he's able to do it. So that's always motivation for a coach as well. So in in 2016, I think he had only dropped one set en route to the final. He's playing Andy Murray. He's the heavy favorite, and then he loses the first set. What were you thinking at that stage? Obviously, uh, the thoughts coming back sometimes, you know, you see the matches as, uh, as Novak overcome against, uh, Roger at the US Open and, you know, uh, many, many, he got them under his belt, but this was something different because he always lost a couple matches against, uh, Rafael and, uh, all the, uh, Stan and the final and everything. So, it always comes to your mind, you know, it can happen again. But, you know, I I strongly believe that, uh, you know, Andy played the best tennis on clay that year. And, uh, uh, and you know, I, I was, I had many hopes that it can always change during the, during the, because it's a long match and it's on clay. And luckily everything went well. And he turned. He got. He, he went. Uh, he turned over the match uh, in the second set, and then obviously he was leading. He was leading the match uh, all the way through the end. He was able to keep it up. With uh, he, I think he Novak was able to uh, make the game better. You know, he started spinning more. He was more patient, and you know, he had a lot of stamina and a lot of endurance and uh you know he 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 felt that he can overcome this you know he's he, he starts strong, strongly believe in the second set that he can win how nervous was he before that final <laughs> it's, you can you cannot cut the air he <laughs> <laughs> was really really nervous was all over the place and you know i mean uh, we have uh, our team we always know we have a couple minutes before the match but then uh, just before the match, I think we have, uh, uh, <laughs> it's similar to coronavirus. We have the two meters distance uh, from him because it's uh, electrifies uh, the atmosphere around and the, you know, the nervousness which comes, we, we don't want to go, uh, uh, through it. And, uh, I mean, we, we, we only, we only were really supportive and, uh, you know, uh, just before the match and a uh, couple, couple, couple sentences which more we emphasize on uh, support. And uh, you know, energy to bring more and more positiveness, and uh, that's it. And then, and was incredible tension. But uh, you know, this this is a something special. You know, 
and uh, after that uh, when he won was uh, i think there was for me as a coach and team especially for novak was something uh, very special maybe he, he would never reach it again but you know he he reached it he he, he touched the final he touched the trophy <laughs> just finally marian the celebrations that night after novak won what can you tell me <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a parade in Paris. It was a parade, you know, <laughs> something, something. Uh, Champs Elysees was, uh, uh, you know, uh, was a breakdown that time, you know. And I mean, we went out and we celebrated as a team uh, together, and uh, we had uh, we we had a nice dinner, and you know, and uh, we celebrate that that place there, and uh, and. Uh, I remember we, we really enjoyed the evening and uh, the moments. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it stays the memory forever, and you know, you just celebrate the joy moment at the moment and uh, uh, thinking that you accomplished something something big. <laughs> Well, they certainly achieved and accomplished something big. And what a lovely fella Marian Vider is from all of our dealings with him. Catherine had a chance to speak to him. And, and, you know, you've always liked him, haven't you? Because he's just, he's, he's such a nice guy. And you can see why Djokovic responds to him. And I think he's really good for him. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, the, the affection that, that Marian Vida has for, for Novak Djokovic just pours out of him, even over the phone. I've only interviewed him twice, that 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 you just heard, and once at um, at Queen's a couple of years ago, because he's, he's a very shy person. He doesn't want to take any limelight from Novak Djokovic, but it's not because he's defensive at all. Every time, uh, each of the two times I've spoken to him, I've been so struck by how open and, and willing to chat he is um, pleasantly surprised, but yeah, the he's he's uh, he's Novak's David Law. <laughs> 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 kind of feels like you know, no matter no matter what is thrown at him, and uh, Djokovic sort of references that in in uh, in his speech actually on the court after he's won. He he says thank you to his team, and he says no matter what I put you through, no matter what. <laughs> rubbish I throw at you and he's, he's with a glint in his eye he says I'm not going to say it but you all know what I mean um, you all stand by me <laughs> uh, yeah no matter no matter what arguments I pick about the pronunciation of Barack Obama's name <laughs> um, <laughs> that was not fair <laughs> however now it's on anyway air. yeah it's just yeah he's like a father figure and, and it, it, I, I'm sure that he's capable of having some stern conversations with him as well and you heard that you know he's a very gifted technical coach as well but that that warmth and, and relationship is something that's completely irreplaceable and that was something that Djokovic discovered wasn't it by trying by trying perhaps not to replace him but trying to trying to do it without him which wasn't possible mm. it's so fascinating that insight into what Djokovic was like just before that 2016 final against Murray I mean I mean, a great line anyway about having to stay two metres apart from him conjures up an incredible image. But as much as I've said that I felt like Djokovic always would win the French Open, in, in a way that is a naive thing to think because that's that's sort of just assuming that these things just happen to these great players. But actually there's so much work. And I do remember that tournament, there being stress on on Djokovic's face, the fact that he got the rough side of the draw. I remember, actually, he, he he threw his racket and almost hit a line judge in a match against Burdick, I think, in the quarterfinals. There was stress, and I, I find it incredible to see these great champions when they're grappling with history. We've seen it with Serena over the last couple of years. It does things to them, and Djokovic went through it in this phase, and Federer went through it in that final game against... Sertling and then at Wimbledon when he had that match with Roddick, you you see a different side to them. You do see the stress and the struggle on their face. They wear it, and um, yeah, to get that behind the scenes um, perspective as well was was really interesting. So thank you, Marion, very much for joining us here on the tennis podcast. And uh, it's it's easy to forget now, isn't it? The struggles that Djokovic had after that match. He mm. he climbed the peak and. 
he really struggled for a while. Now, a lot of that was because of injury, of course. He, he had that uh, injury that required a, a surgery in the end on his elbow, but he, he lost, wasn't it, to Sam Querrey, wasn't it, at Wimbledon early on, um, shortly afterwards. And, That's when uh, you know something's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sam was on fire at that Wimbledon, but, you know, I mean, come on, normally. Well, he I mean, just... the next year it was defeat to Sam Querrey that <laughs> made everyone certain that Murray's hip had gone. <laughs> Yes, kind. That's I'd not thought of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, Djokovic's results were nothing like for the next year and a half what they what they were before that, and and he had six months out of the game as well. Um, has come back to the top again now, but uh, that particular moment in time was one that well and in fact the whole 12 months and the whole premise of this particular podcast that was an incredible series of two grand slam finals in paris in the space of just over 12 months and just an incredible um period in the sport to witness it's been it's been a real treat to relive them i hope you've enjoyed them too which means folks we only have one more of these shows to go 14 podcasts in 14 days and tomorrow we have simona halep trying to win her first ever grand slam title against sloan stevens who'd already won one so 2018 is where we're going back to ah it's almost over i can remember what happened in 2018 so there's no need to no need to remind me (laughs) no (laughs) should we just replay the podcast you did (laughs) (laughs) see if anyone notices (laughs) (laughs) what another day off (laughs) okay Uh, no no we're not going to do that because I want to watch the match again Uh, I seem to recall it was a good one it was Uh, and and we've got Darren Cahill Samantha Halep's coach on the tennis podcast in an interview we did with him a few weeks ago so hope you're enjoying these Uh, we certainly are and uh, and we're looking forward to that one but uh, this one's been a treat and uh, yeah we'll be back again tomorrow do tell your friends your family and anybody you know who likes tennis about the tennis podcast if you think they might like to listen as well and uh, we'll speak to you tomorrow even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 